Hello, my name is Stephanie. And my name is Jason. And this is our podcast, Edible Ethics. Is that what it is? Edible Ethics. Ethics on edibles. We are beginning this podcast as a planned series of conversations about perennial or new ethical issues or ethical challenges that are arising. Conversations that we have why we're high on edibles. Exactly. (laughs) One of the things that we've decided is that the way that marijuana can help take the edge off could actually be a really interesting entree into difficult conversations or conversations about difficult topics. And also, we both like talking with each other (laughs) with each other and we both like getting high so sounds like a good combination we'll say though just to get our ethical ducks in a row that we are getting high legally both of us are way past the age in which it is legal for us to get high and we're in a jurisdiction in which it is legal to use marijuana exactly recreationally and and for podcast purposes (laughs) that's right We should also maybe indicate what edibles we are partaking of so that people, if they want a similar experience, (laughs) can perhaps do so. So, And this is a confession this time. uh, We are both, we both enhanced our high with vaping. So this is not a completely edible experience. And that's in part because of the particular edible that we have at our disposal. Normally, Stephanie would find a dose of maybe five milligrams of THC in a gummy. Exactly, that's her sweet spot, as it were. And her preferred form for edibles is gummies. And that is the same for me. Love me a gummy. My sweet spot is closer to probably 20 milligrams, uh, but I'm still trying to figure that out. And it really depends on the purpose. Right. And usually I buy ones that are either five milligrams or 10 milligrams of a gummy. And often um, I can buy them 10 gummies for 10 milligrams. That's kind of like the maximum, I think, that I've been able to buy. Yeah. 10, 10 gummies, 10 milligrams each, total of 100 milligrams in the sachet or canister. And I'm the same way. Like Stephanie, I also enjoy when there's a THC, CBD combination. Mm -hmm. And both of us, I think, prefer hybrid strains of indica and sativa rather than a pure strain of either. Right. So I recently visited the great city of Toronto, Ontario, uh, which I highly recommend. It's one of the greatest cities in the world. And uh, I was taking a walk down, oh gosh, what street was it? Church Street? I know Church Street very well. Okay. (laughs) So there's various amounts of entertainments and pleasures on Church Street. And one of the things that was there was a dispensary, a cannabis dispensary. And it was run by uh, indigenous peoples. So is your first time in such a dispensary? Absolutely. I didn't even know they existed. In the state-run dispensaries in Toronto, Ontario... The state being the province, province. <laughs> the government, the government-run uh, dispensaries in Ontario, you are only allowed to sell edibles up to a maximum of 10 milligrams. Five milligrams per serving, 10 milligrams total. Anyway, you can't get a lot <laughs> in one container. 
And the most I've seen, I think, is 20 milligrams in other jurisdictions. Yeah. So I was looking through the edibles at this indigenous shop and there was a lollipop and I thought, well, that would be fun to have a lollipop. And I asked them how much THC was in it. It was 50 milligrams. <laughs> so it was 10 times the amount of milligrams that I would usually ingest. And when I, you know, expressed some surprise to it, that's when he, the, the young man explained that as an indigenous store, they were not bound by the provincial laws or the Canadian government laws. Wow. Which sounds about right. So yes, they're uh, sovereign people. Absolutely. So I didn't buy the lollipop, <laughs> but the, he had a, he had a THC CBD gummy package that had 10 gummies in it. And, um, each one the size of a small die. Yeah. They're very small. And it was, a, as you said, we, I like a mixed strain and it was mixed strain and had both THC and CBD. So done and done. It was like 40 Canadian dollars. And I went on my merry way. When I went to open the package and take a gummy, I was again assuming it was 10, it had 10 gummies. I was assuming they were 10 milligrams each and it was 100 milligrams. The package said it was a thousand milligrams of THC. So lesson number one. <laughs> <laughs> Always read the package before you take one. And Stephanie fortunately did. I did read. Oh, yeah. Like, thank goodness. Because one of those, 100 milligrams, would be 20 times. The so, sweet spot. And uh, and it's not necessarily the case that more is better. No, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure all of you who have had edibles, I would suspect if you're listening, know that absolutely more is not better. Um, but it took me a while. It's also pr problematic, right? Because I don't work in milligrams. Like that's not my wheelhouse, right? The metric system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it took me a while to convince myself that this was actually happening, that it was actually 10 times as much as I was usually buying. And I had to go back and look at previous packages that I bought. And yes, it was to the power of 10. So this little handful of dice. Yeah. Mini dice. Very small. Contains... A thousand yep. milligrams of THC and a thousand milligrams of CBD, one to one match. And uh, as Stephanie said, that's 20 times her normal dosage and five times my normal dosage. <laughs> but what's funny about this is that these little things are so tiny that it's very hard to get one twentieth. Right, exactly. <laughs> <of the> <laughs> Exactly. So that this is the whole story is about. I have not yet figured out, and nor is he, exactly how much of the, this tiny gummy to break off to, to achieve the high that we're looking to achieve. We need a tiny meat slicer. Yeah. And then we could cut it in tenths. Well, yeah. And this is presuming that the THC is evenly distributed even. in the gummy. Like I'm not, I don't even know. Yeah, there might be what a, that molecule there looks might like. Be a, there <laughs> might be a sweet THC center that we haven't gotten yeah, to. Yeah, I mean I in fact I've already had that experience where I, I tried to take a tiny bit and it was too much and I just, you know, fell asleep for two hours and woke up kind of groggy. <laughs> um hard to do so edible ethics yeah, under those circumstances. Right. So in the future, we'll have better recommendations about the highs that we get from specific edibles. But mm -hmm. these are only really potentially available in this shop in Toronto, and, and we don't even know how to use them effectively yet. So <laughs> so the ethical issue, I don't know if we want to call them issues. It sounds so dry. Ethical 
landscape that we want to explore. <laughs> I think that's actually a good way to put it because we're interested in the environments in which we behave ethically or unethically and some of the environmental drivers mm -hmm. uh, of either good or bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think landscape is actually a really good metaphor for that. Well, we're going to explore the ethical landscape of weed. That seemed like an appropriate way to begin. Absolutely. And I want to point out that even though I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about the history of legalization and criminalization of marijuana distribution and use, uh, of course, the legal landscape and the ethical landscape are not identical by any stretch. And that's something that I think is beginning to change a little bit. It's not often the case that law and ethics align beautifully. Sometimes the law is lagging behind, for instance. Um, Sometimes uh, the ethical understanding is oh, lagging behind as well. Absolutely. So, you know, we'll do our metaphor. They, they, the law and ethics kind of are, are navigating the same landscape, but sometimes they wander on different paths and at different paces. But we would like them to be aligned. But at the same time, I think the ethical and legal considerations help shape those landscapes as well. Mm -hmm. And so create new paths mm -hmm. or create obstacles yeah. or, by contrast, um, smooth paths. I'm going to say forward, but I don't mean that in a progressive way. I'm using the path metaphor. Yeah, yeah, right. Privilege, privilege certain paths over yes, other Yes, privilege ones. certain paths over others. That's exactly the way to put the it. The road Stephanie. not taken. I'm going to start just with a quick history of how I got interested in Okay, really quick because we're high. <laughs> in marijuana, very quick. Um, and we should say that you, you have some professional credentials. If, be careful, man. I know, I took another little bite. Stephanie's concerned. Don't be, I'm good. We're, in, we're safe at home. You have some professional credentials in the ethical arena. Mm -hmm. So I didn't try marijuana until I was in my 40s. No, nobody offered me any <laughs> in the first case. It wasn't right. that I had any objection to it. Uh, me as well. Stephanie as well. Yeah. Um, well, one, it wasn't legal. Mm -hmm. And I had some ethical issues with participating in the illegal drug industry. And then also I had some Concerns about breaking the law <laughs> that were not ethical and <laughs> more practical logistical concerns about breaking the law. And absolutely, as an ethicist, um, I wasn't even remotely concerned about breaking the law. I just <laughs> didn't have access until it oh, became legal. Oh, I got to say, actually, in my uh, mid-20s, I was at a party with other graduate students. I was a graduate student, and uh, someone passed around a, jo a joint, and I did try it, but, you know, in the famous words of... Bill Clinton, I didn't inhale just because I didn't know how to. I've never smoked, which is, you know, definitely a, a, a trick. You have to learn how to inhale. Absolutely. You really do. Yeah. I say absolutely a lot when I'm high. Oh, you do? Well, I, I, can, take the, I can take a lot of them out. So it's not. <laughs> I think that's an excellent <laughs> idea, and I absolutely recommend it. So I didn't have any experience with it, but... I was asked to participate in a, a conversation about the medical uses of marijuana for various kinds of neurological conditions. And so I started doing uh, a little bit of research, and then that sort of flowered, as it were. Uh, and you asked because you are a both a philosopher of biology and a philosopher of ethics. That's right. And so ever since my interest in this has, has blossomed or flowered, and I became 
at some point, the opportunity arose for me to, to try marijuana once it became legal in my jurisdiction. So what's interesting about marijuana is that it is a Schedule One DEA classified drug in the United States of America. So what that means is the Drug Enforcement Agency has characterized marijuana as both dangerous and subject to overuse or abuse, and it has no proven medical benefit. Uh, so that that's what gets you. That last part is important for getting onto the Schedule 1. And the Schedule 1 is the most restrictive category of drugs. Exactly. So you got the, the big guys in there, cocaine and... Cocaine, I think, is Schedule 2. Oh, man. But okay. meth... Okay, there you go. Um, would be Schedule 1. Mm -hmm. And let's just put it this way. On Schedule 1, marijuana is the odd one out. In other words, you take a look at the other drugs. Right. You've heard of them, and you're like, yep, I can totally see right. why that's restricted in people this People are dying every day of, of these drugs. Exactly. By contrast. Right. Um, Zero people are dying every day of marijuana. And marijuana is listed on Schedule 1. So the challenge that that creates is... A Schedule 1 drug requires a Schedule 1 license in order for it to be studied clinically. And getting a Schedule 1 license, historically, and that when I say historically, I mean up until about this year, has been really, really difficult. There are major research institutions in the U.S. that have exactly zero people with a Schedule 1 license. So... As a result, there's what many people have referred to as a catch-22. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug because it has no proven medical benefit, while at the same time, because it's a Schedule One drug, it's very, very challenging to study it to see if it has any medical benefit. Right. And the bulk of the studies that have been funded, at least in the U.S., uh, but, but internationally as well, are studies that focus on the ill effects, potential harms associated with the use of marijuana, not the potential benefits. But that's starting to change now uh, a little bit. And one of the reasons it's starting to change is that a number of states in the U.S. and a number of jurisdictions around the world have started to allow for the use of marijuana for medical purposes. And in a number of those states, it's also available for recreational purposes. Because medical marijuana is available in a number of places, there's been a push to actually see, well, is it actually medically efficacious? Because right now, though there's you know some evidence that it's useful for some things, including nausea and certain kinds of pain, there uh, is not a lot of evidence beyond that yet. Yeah. In part, because... There's just no, not a lot of evidence, period, around period. marijuana. And, of course, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons I think uh, ethics of weed is a particularly rich vein because it highlights a bunch of kind of ethical intersections <laughs> that have to do with drugs more broadly. For instance, paternalism. I mean, it just making it a schedule one drug and controlling it the way that it does just kind of reeks of paternalism. And this actually happened in the U.S. starting just after the end of prohibition. Somebody who had been a very active prohibition proponent 
needed something else to prohibit (laughs) (laughs) and went after marijuana. And of course, therefore, it's always been because marijuana use historically has been associated with particular demographics. I was going to ask, was race involved in this or race is definitely one of race and class are the two key Mm -hmm. drivers of that prohibitionist movement with regard to marijuana. And at the same time, marijuana was actually listed until the 1980s, I think, in the pharmacopoeia, which is the compendium of medical drugs. And marijuana was listed there, although without a lot of clinical evidence, it's since been removed. And so as a result, we're in this weird space where medical marijuana is now legally available in a large number of places, and yet it's epistemological, to use a philosopher's words, or, you know, what we actually know about it is dramatically limited. And therefore, it's, you know, insofar as we're supposed to think of medicine as evidence-driven or evidence-based, because we don't have the evidence base for marijuana, it's a kind of perversion, potentially, of medicine, which is one of the reasons I advocate for a non-restrictive approach to marijuana generally. Well, it's also a perversion of the legal impetus. I mean, so we were talking earlier, the connection between ethics and law. We hope that our, our laws are governed by and reflect our, ethic, our best ethical impulses as, as a culture and a community. And so, you know, certainly paternalism might have a place in law, but the way that it's been treated legally, it is not actually protective. In fact, as you're describing, it's the opposite because we both aren't aware of the potential benefits it holds to our health and happiness. But also, I mean, you've mentioned there is some research about harm, but not a lot. That's right. So and no kind of long-term longitudinal. So we're not actually, we don't have access to the information. And it's even to- worse, Stephanie. It's even worse. Let me just point out All that right. because so much of the research was based on marijuana grown at this one facility, oh, really? <laughs> the marijuana that's grown at that facility has way less THC and CBD in it than what's commonly available now Mm -hmm. in the dispensaries Mm -hmm. or for that matter on the street. Mm -hmm. And so what evidence we have is based on something that's supposed to stand in for marijuana, but in fact isn't representative of marijuana at at all. Now, again, that's starting to change a little bit, but we just don't have the evidence. So the paternalism aspect, the ethics of paternalism is, is, is available to us. But I'm particularly interested with weed in this larger ethical conversation about the difference between medicine and drugs, which seems to be the kind of primary driver. The, that's what the fight has been about, right? Mm-hmm. If it's medicine, it's okay. If it's helpful, to your health, it's fine to take. But if it's not, but if you're but if you're using it for any other reason, reason then it's then it's unethical and immoral and can be legislated against. Exactly, and that's especially so in the states that allow for medical marijuana but not recreational marijuana use. When I was talking to my parents, who are older, older than you, older than me, wow. even I know there's people in the world <laughs> older than me. Um. I was describing a camping trip in which I, I indulged in uh, marijuana for the first time. This was shortly after it was legal in, in the place where I was living. And um, 
my mother was raised as a Mormon and she was, I think, <laughs> slightly taken aback with my description of drug use. And she mentioned that, oh, well, you know, my brother-in-law takes some CBD for, for sleep. I think, you know, so she was trying to reconcile my use with like, well, this, you know, he takes it and it's fine. So, I mean, just this whole thing, like, like as we're saying, people find it easier to reconcile drug use if it's in a kind of medicalized format. Exactly. Opioids are fine for pain management, but not fine as a drug. Now, that's a pretty stark case. Right. But there are way less stark cases, and marijuana is one of them. And uh, I'm going to call you out because you have participated in this kind of thinking sometimes where I have, you know, mentioned to you the number of drugs that you take. The number of legally prescribed drugs that I take. <laughs> but I would just describe them as drugs. Well, you know, it's not just you have I, legally prescribed, but you also have I'm just clarifying that Stephanie, when Stephanie oh, yeah, says the number of drugs, drugs that I take, she doesn't mean that I'm also on meth. And No, exactly. But that's what it sounds like. And so you would counter, you know, immediately, oh, well, these are prescribed as if that, that it, if it changes fundamentally their nature. But of course it doesn't. It changes their legal nature. And it changes, for most people, it seems to change their ethical status. Right. It like, changes the narrative around it and allows for it to be ethically justifiable as distinct from... Doing drugs. Doing drugs. Exactly. And so... so and, I, and Stephanie's right. I have totally... I'm totally guilty of this kind of thinking when it comes to my prescription drugs. Because it's almost like the doctor made me do it, right? So... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You are offering your agency over to a medical professional, and if they tell you to take this drug, then you'll take the drug. That's completely true. And I will take it. I am I am a very compliant patient, <laughs> and so I will take it religiously, including a drug I'm on that gives me diarrhea. <laughs> well, you're a compliant person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're looking to comply. But so what, what, what I found, what I just find so interesting, right, is that Morally, ethically, we, the bigger we, are the communities in, in which we live. Different people have different standards. But generally, we are fine with people doing something, ingesting something to relieve pain. But we do not allow people. There's a much higher bar to clear if people want to take something to feel pleasure. Absolutely. And you where know, do you the, think that comes from? Is well, it puritanical? It, I do believe it is. And it actually... Fear of pleasure? And it, and it really carries over, too, in terms of a very popular distinction in ethical discussions about any number of topics these days is a distinction between therapy and enhancement. Mm -hmm. The presumption is therapy's ethically acceptable. Right. It's just fixing something. It's like just fixing something and restoring someone to some normal level of functioning as distinct from enhancement which moves beyond and emphasizes some other goal than merely the alleviation of pain or suffering of some medical sort i mean this kind of came up in the early days of depression medication drugs i'm just gonna call them all drugs <laughs> i think that's good i think let's normalize that stuff right exactly uh so that in the early days of uh, depression drugs prozac and and that class of drugs where it was kind of everyone it was kind of a moral panic right you, because people were taking these drugs to be happy 
well, you're not allowed to just take a drug to be happy. And it wasn't, I mean, it, it wasn't really until kind of more discussions about the suffering that people with the depression, so they weren't trying to get to be happy. They were just trying not to be terribly depressed and suicidal. Oh, okay, well, that's okay. <laughs> you can, the you same can, drug. Right. Just redescribe the same drug, the same person, the same situation redescribed. Yeah. So it, there's no danger of ma- depression drugs making people happy. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. We're just satisfied if it makes some people not so terribly unhappy, not so crippling. So we're lacking evidence that it's helpful, medicinally helpful. By the way, we also lack evidence that a whole lot of other drugs are medicinally yes. helpful. Yeah, but it's not a <laughs> Including rich. antidepressants. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's kind of like, if it makes me feel good, what does it matter? I'm trying to remember the Sheryl Crow lyric. If it makes you happy, then how can it be so bad? <laughs> that's right. And Especially if it makes you happy at no one else's expense. And my impression is that weed, amongst so many drugs that are out there, recreational and so-called medicine, it is one of the ones that is the least likely to cause social harm. With one glaring exception. Okay, let's hear it. The entirety of the drug trade, the illegal non-medical drug trade, is driven by cartels. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that was my ethical... Objection in the Objection first Objection to doing it when it was not legal and it was not regulated. And so the, the push toward legalization of marijuana is meant to keep the, as it were, the cartels out of it. The mm-hmm. marijuana is grown under you know, certain relatively well laid out restrictions or constraints, and it's federally or state regulated right. or provincially regulated yeah. as distinct from the black market. Right. Um, so with, we'll just, in the future, we'll be buying them off Amazon, which is just a federally regulated cartel. <laughs> His own ethical challenges there. <laughs> so I think, I think one way to clarify the point or just to make it a little finer point that yeah. Stephanie was making earlier is that absent the backstory or in the context in which growing and distributing marijuana is legal, there are a few drugs that you can imagine that could cause less social harm than marijuana, than individuals taking marijuana for whatever reason they like. Gives them gives them joy. It gives them joy. So, for instance, people always make the comparison to alcohol and the, and the social ills that convey w- with alcohol use, violence, including domestic violence. And, but then also the, the health-related issues like cirrhosis of the liver. But again, there's the social harms on the one hand, and then the more individual harms. Cirrhosis of the liver is an individual health problem. Yeah, and you can make the argument that it's a burden on the health system, but, you know. In uh, places that have a health system. In places that have a health system. But there's no evidence, no evidence even from the studies specifically designed to explore the negative effects of marijuana use. There's no evidence that marijuana causes the kind of harm to individuals that alcohol use does to alcoholics. And I certainly enjoy alcohol as well as a drug and the effects of alcohol. You and me both, sister. (laughs) Great. But one of the things that I like about marijuana that is in some ways the opposite of alcohol is alcohol, obviously, as we know, is an uninhibitor, disinhibitor? Disinhibitor. And the emotions kind of flow freely, right? (laughs) You just become unblocked, which is often great. I mean, sometimes it's about loving everybody who's in the room and everyone in the world and uh, just feeling connected and 
engaged, but sometimes the emotions that come out are not so great. And you know, can be quicker to anger and quicker to sadness and more difficult regulating those those painful emotions. That doesn't happen to me when I'm high. Absolutely right. not. Um, with one exception. All right. In my case, but it wasn't marijuana. It was magic mushrooms, in which case I went out of my way to tell everybody how much I love them <laughs> and even proposed to somebody that I'd met a week before. Well, that's not ethical. Uh, not a, no, but but you're right. You you're mellow. So I you're mean, mellow. like if you, you know, no one's going to war. No one's getting in a bar fight. <laughs> I mean, it's different if you combine alcohol and sure. marijuana use, sure. yeah. because then you end up with potentially the worst of both. Although in many cases, the combination of marijuana and alcohol is sleepiness. That's true. Nox, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, I mean, your mileage may vary. It really is going to be dependent on individuals and their tolerances and so forth. So I think this is one of the reasons why the social harms are perhaps not so prevalent with marijuana because mm -hmm. everyone's just like, chill out. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's some evidence beginning to accumulate that driving while intoxicated by the use of marijuana is socially problematic, but it's not as if you go to a marijuana saloon and smoke up and then get in your car and drive right. home in the same way that you do going to a bar and getting yeah. drunk and driving home. Yeah. So the social, the, the sort of very immediate social environment of the use of the drug is really different from the use of alcohol. There have been a few public surveys in the last decade or so since states have started really getting on board with the idea of at least medical marijuana. There have been a number of public opinion surveys that have demonstrated that the majority surveyed strongly believe that marijuana is less harmful than alcohol. And yet alcohol is fully legal everywhere under particular constraints, whereas marijuana is only has only recently begun to be available and the restraints are much more restrictive for access to marijuana than they are for access to alcohol. So, I mean, that's a good point, given that marijuana isn't as prevalent and has been so tightly controlled. It may be in the future as that changes that, that more of these social ills come to the forefront and it might be a different ethical conversation. But I do think, you know, because there's this obvious hypocrisy with, with alcohol and marijuana, that the ethical issue is not about the social ills that it causes. And that I think it really is this issue of what is the ethics of pain and pleasure in our culture? What are we allowed to do to relieve pain? And what are we allowed to do True. to create pleasure for ourselves? And, you know, and what counts as pain? Because is pain the absence of pleasure? What's this normal state that we're, we're all supposed to be allowed to be in where <laughs> we feel a little bit of pain, we feel a little bit of pleasure, but not too much of either? One really interesting thing that I heard recently from a scholar of marijuana usage is that in, in some states, up to 50% of the marijuana used is still obtained legally, is still black market marijuana. And so then that also creates interesting questions for me, at least, about the demographics of that and the potential issues of class and race coming back into this conversation they were sort of in the background 
in the 30s and 40s. I suspect they've been in the background throughout and they're still with us. In terms of what type of people use marijuana? Mm -hmm. What type of person are you? And then also kind of what type of person are you that seeks pleasure? Even though pleasure is as important as the absence of pain. I mean, hey, it's in the American Constitution. That's I mean, true. The pursuit of happiness <laughs> is something we ought to be. That's true. I didn't think of that. So that's so interesting. And yet we really don't like it when people do that. I mean, we're happy to pursue our own happiness, but we're not happy to see other people pursue theirs. Right. <laughs> I guess we're allowed to pursue happiness in a in a market economy kind of way. It's like we're allowed to try to get rich as if that makes us happy. Right. <laughs> Um, but the kind of bodily, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the, the bodily pleasures are, are somehow more immoral. I mm-hmm. mean, back to the puritanical thing. You know, the Puritans were fine with kind of making money and, and getting status and, and sure power. And, and why is that not pleasure-seeking? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I was why thinking that okay? of European countries within which there hasn't been a kind of puritanical history of closing off the use of marijuana, for instance, for recreational purposes. You know, you think of a, a place like the Netherlands. Well, sure. <laughs> they don't close off anything for recreational purposes. But yeah, I mean, many of the European cultures, those are the ones I'm familiar with, and, you know, it could be true of other areas of the world, South American. There seems to be a much healthier relationship to pleasure. Mm-hmm. And they make it easier to access across the board the various pleasures that are afforded to us and they also don't work as much (laughs) for that reason because the idea is that pleasure-seeking activities are an appropriate way to spend one's time you know aside from folks who are specifically trying to alleviate a medical condition everybody else who goes to a dispensary is looking for something to increase their joy or their pleasure. It might be even just to sleep better or to relax after a day hard at work in the capitalist minds, or (laughs) they want a fresh start to the day with a little bit more clarity or focus. And these are all particular needs that can be met by contemporary marijuana. So we'll wrap up this inaugural discussion, inaugural and somewhat winding discussion of the ethics of weed. Will each of us say what we, we think is maybe kind of the ethical crux or the really kind of the ethical heart of, of this, this issue? What maybe we should be thinking about when we think about the ethics of, of weed? What, what's your big kind of... Well, I'm going to go back to something Stephanie said earlier when she said that she wasn't interested in marijuana when she was younger. It was in part because of the criminal enterprise within which weed was featured. And to me, that's one of the the big challenges. I'm not interested in supporting a criminal enterprise. Mm -hmm. So where the weed comes from is important to me. And so I think Although you buy from Amazon. And (laughs) that is true. At the same time, on Amazon, I try to make the most ethical purchases I make. And as you can attest, uh, my Amazon purchasing frequency has declined declined quite dramatically 
So that's one thing is that where the weed so is you, coming you, from. You think that's one of the things people should be thinking about when they think about their own ethical use of weed. Absolutely. That's mm -hmm. one of the things. That's what I think people should be thinking about. I'm in agreement with, with, with you absolutely that that's an important question about the ethical use of weed. But I would choose for my kind of crucial issue is this relationship to pain and pleasure. And I, th I think thinking about one's own relationship to those ideas, pain, pleasure, and what kind of ethical or moral judgments you put on yourself for pursuing pleasure or relieving pain, and what kind of moral and ethical, just, moral and ethical judgments you put on other people in their attempts to find pleasure or relieve pain is a worthwhile ethical pursuit. I completely agree. So there are a couple of things to think about for our, our many, many listeners. I definitely got higher <laughs> over the course of this you did. episode. Oh, so I wonder when we listen back if we'll be able to tell. Exactly. I'm very curious about that. <laughs> but I'm very excited also for our next installment of Edible Ethics, where we get a little high and talk about the ethical landscape of our contemporary world. We hope you'll join us.